Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 192. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach, and I'm pleased to be joined again by the doctor of kick-ass, Mr. Mike Pekarski. Mike, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing pretty good. How long, is it, how long has it been since I was on since last time? About a year or so? Yeah, believe it or not, I think it's been over a year. Time oh, flies, wow. man. That is yeah, crazy. Yeah, I know it doesn't feel that long ago, but yeah, it's I think you were on in the 130 range of episodes and we're we're into 190 now. We're closing yeah. in on 200 and we do one a week, so yeah, that's over a year. Oh wow. Yeah. I know time has kind of changed during COVID. It's just like things don't make sense right now. So. I know. It's things simultaneously feel way longer, but also way quicker. It's really weird. Absolutely. The last two or three years, it feels like it's been a lifetime, but it also feels like it's passed incredibly quickly. Yeah, I definitely agree. Definitely agree. So anyway, you've been a busy guy since the last time we chatted. I know that you've been helping a friend of the show, Andrew Wiltsey, on his injury rehab journey. I also know you've been working with other friends of the show, Matteo Capodaglio and Margo Ciccarelli. You guys have been doing a a cool triad project where you've Uh been kind of creating a jujitsu athlete in a box program. But man, you've been ramping it up. Why don't you tell me what you've been up to? Yeah, so I I worked with Margo on her jujitsu accelerator program. So, you know, she's a world-class athlete and she wanted to kind of like create this program on how to, I guess, make someone, how to accelerate their jiu-jitsu game. And then she brought on me and Dr. Capo, just kind of like experts that would discuss things that would benefit a jiu-jitsu athlete. So Dr. Capo, obviously he's the nutrition guy. So nutrition for combat sports. And then for me is... I was kind of in this weird realm because, you know, I'm a doctor of physical therapy, but I understand strength and conditioning. So, you know, I did a a lecture on like injury management for a jiu-jitsu athlete and then, you know, a strength and conditioning, like how to optimize the jiu-jitsu athlete. So that was a cool project. That was fun. Like you said, I've been working a little bit with Andrew Wiltsey. He's a not necessarily an easy guy to work with. So like I work with him intensely and then he kind of drops off for a bit. So I guess other stuff that I do is, you know, I've ramped up my personal business. So I do a performance coaching for combat athletes. So I've been pretty busy with that. So that's kind of kind of like where I've been. Awesome. Awesome. And of course, for everyone who isn't familiar with you, I mean, like I said, you've been on the podcast before. You are, of course, Jiu-Jitsu's resident doctorate of kick-ass. Uh, <laughs> I'm still not entirely sure where you got that credential exactly, but you're generally well-known in the Jiu-Jitsu community as being an amazing resource for anyone who's got questions about rehab or injury management or returning to sport. We talked about these things a little bit in our last chat, but today I'd love to dig in a lot 
lot deeper with you just on this broad topic of returning to sport, returning to Brazilian jiu-jitsu after a long layoff for whatever reason. And I think that's a fantastic topic, something that I get a lot of questions about, something I'm positive you get a lot of questions about. And so I'm hoping we can put together a good little resource package here for people who are on the mend and looking to get back onto the mats. Sure. Yeah, so this is kind of an interesting topic because one, jiu-jitsu athletes are kind of a, the classic dumb athlete that be like, oh, I can't raise my arm overhead. Like, I'll just roll light, whatever that means, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> so like, they're like, you know, like you see those like, like 40 year old black belts that like can only move like one limb and they're like still like rolling around on the mat. You're like, why are you here? <laughs> you know, and then there's, you know, so that's like kind of like one thing that's kind of interesting. And then the second thing is because combat sports have become, they've grown a lot over the years. They're becoming more popular, but still like with, you know, the rehab world, like physical therapy, like, you know, I would say that it's, it's not a topic that's kind of been expanded upon. So there's a lot of physical therapists, chiropractors, rehab specialists that really don't know what they're doing when they want to work with, you know, a combat athlete. So, you know, it's kind of interesting because, you know, that's where I'm trying to go is, how can I educate the athlete, but how can I also educate the healthcare professional? So if you are working with a jujitsu athlete, like what are you looking to do to get them back? Yeah, fantastic intro there. And I think most jujitsu people can probably relate to this. I mean, I hear this all the time. We're professional athletes. They get an injury. They go to a, a doctor or a physio who doesn't have experience with combat sports. And the advice they often get is, well, just never train again. And then you yeah. won't have that problem. And that just isn't really workable advice if your job is to do jujitsu. And also, I would say that the standard and the requirements for being a jujitsu athlete, like these are not regular couch potatoes like myself. For these people, their ability to rehab and push through pain is very different from mere mortals. So I think that they need to be treated a bit differently. And you come in with this very unique combination of being not just a black belt in jujitsu yourself, but also being a very prominent physiotherapist in the space. So always happy to uh, to have you on. You're a great follow on Instagram for anyone who wants to learn more about how not to wreck their body doing jujitsu. And if you do, how to recover from that. <laughs> so really looking forward to this chat with you, Mike. Thanks again for coming back on the show. No problem. Yeah. So to kick this thing off, you know, we talked about what would be a great and generally applicable topic here for this particular episode. And what we settled on was returning to sport. So the scenario is for whatever reason, you're a jujitsu practitioner. You haven't been training for some reason. You want to get back into it. How do you do it? There's a lot of parameters that could go into that equation. Maybe you're a pro competitor and you got injured. Maybe you're just a hobbyist. And the differences there are, of course, pretty vast. But this goes beyond just injury. For a lot of people, if they take time off for work-related reasons, very common thing if you're a hobbyist, right? You might have to take a significant jujitsu layoff for reasons unrelated to injury. But you still have a lot of problems when you come back on the mat. I mean, I remember I took a long layoff years ago. And when I came back, man, my technique was rusty. My cardio was just atrocious. There was a lot of stuff that needed to be worked on. And I really wish I had thought deliberately about how to on-ramp myself back up. I would also say that there are other considerations beyond just conventional injury. I get a ton of people who are dealing with long COVID right now. People who either they don't have a gas tank anymore or they have just terrible brain fog. There's a bunch of reasons unrelated to getting a limb snapped off in terms of why you might not be able to train. But the the process 
is always going to have some similarities in terms of, okay, how do I get myself back up to where I was after this thing happened to me? And I had to kind of like turn the dial down. Now I want to get back up to and maybe exceed where I was before. How do I do that? Now, I understand that that's a pretty broad topic, and I'm not sure really if there's a good place to start that conversation off from, but I'll turn that over to you. Why don't you tell me how you work with people who are coming back to jujitsu after a long layoff and how that can look in practice? Okay, so I'll start with kind of like the acute injury and then kind of like the how I take someone through the rehab process or what a, a jiu-jitsu athlete may experience. And then we'll talk about strategies on at one point I'd have them do whatever strategy I recommend. So, so let's say you have a jiu-jitsu athlete, they have an acute injury. Now, again, this could be like, you know, some kind of injury that happened rolling. It could be a joint lock. It could be like a scramble or takedown. Ironically, that I don't think people realize, I would say that more injuries happen with like a positional scramble than the actual joint lock. Because for the most part, like in most, mostly in training, people are going to tap. Like, yes, yeah, stuff happens, you know, competition is a little bit different, but most of the injuries are going to happen in training. And then most of them happen in just some kind of energetic scramble. So you have some kind of injury, right? What do you do? So the problem with a lot of jiu-jitsu athletes is they'll assume that an injury is just going to go back the way it is. And obviously there's those 19 year olds where you can throw them off the building and, and they'll be fine. But you have to remember that when you have an injury, your body goes through a process of the initial phase is it starts to release hormones, which create the inflammatory process, which is necessary for the healing cascade to begin. And then your, your body sends cells to start to kind of like knit the injury back together. But during this phase, what happens is that injury is, is really weak and, and fragile. It's, it's not the way it was. And how do you get it back to the way it was? Well, you have to do appropriate loading, which is a concept called mechanotransduction or mechanotherapy. That's, in my opinion, what physical therapy really is, which is appropriate loading to the damaged tissue to rebuild it so it gains previous level of resilience. So you have an injury, you know, when do you go see someone? So this is kind of a tricky one, right? Because some injuries will get better. I'm biased. So if you have an injury, I think it's a good idea to talk to somebody. But obviously, you know, even though in jujitsu, we can say that there are quote unquote jujitsu professional athletes, I would say that most people who do jujitsu are not actually a professional athlete, meaning they're paid to compete. A lot of times that you pay, you know, like they'll compete and then they make their money doing seminars or some other thing. So it's, it's, jujitsu is kind of like a funky thing where, you know, a lot of people don't have access to healthcare. I know like tons, tons of professional fighters in the UFC who have no health insurance because essentially what they're doing is they're, they're assuming that their injury is going to happen in a fight. So when they get hurt in the fight, a company's insurance will pay for it, which is crazy. Yeah, man, I remember I was traveling into the U.S. I'm I'm Canadian, right? Yeah. I live in Vancouver, yeah. B.C. And I remember I was traveling into the U.S. one time, and I was in Hawaii, I believe, and I was sparring with some folks at a jiu-jitsu gym out there. And I just jokingly said something to the effect of, hey, be careful with me, man. Don't hurt me. My, you know, I, I'm outside of my country. I don't have yeah. health insurance here. And the guy just looked at me deadpan and was like, Dude, none of us have health insurance here. Yeah. And I realized, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. I guess as a Canadian, I sometimes take that healthcare thing for granted. But yeah. yeah, there's definitely going to be a lot of people who don't have that kind of coverage. And that's, that is a very, very meaningful thing because, like you said, there's a lot of injuries that happen in training. It's not always going to be in the fight or in the match that you get that injury. And you touched on something really important earlier, which is that a lot of injuries come out of scrambles and not out of cranked submissions. Probably 
probably a shocking amount. Uh, this is something that Rob Bernanke has talked about. He has said in the past that there's no such thing as a scramble, which, of course, you know, he's kind of saying to be intentionally uh, provocative. But what he means by that is if you're scrambling, a lot of the time when people say this is a scramble, what they really mean is I don't know what position I'm in and I don't know what the proper thing to do is from here. So I'm going to rely on athleticism to try to deal with this. I'm going to try to explode out of this position and get somewhere I'm familiar with. And when you're in that kind of state where you're trying to compensate for lack of knowledge by relying on explosiveness and athleticism, injuries abound. And that's a very important consideration. And also something that as you get older, you need to be mindful of if you ever find yourself in that situation where you're thinking, I don't really know what the right thing is to do in this position. You got to be wary of relying on explosiveness in the moment because that is going to increase the likelihood of injury. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm going to move on from here. So you have your injury, right? So when do you go see someone? This is obviously a tricky thing. Whenever people say, you know, you know, cause obviously there's different levels of care, but here's some, a guideline that I think would be valuable on when you, it would be a good idea of when you should see someone, whether you think it's going to resolve on its own. So let's say, you know, you're, you're in something, someone cranked on a, a joint or you felt a pop. Pops don't necessarily mean that it's severe damage. It could be mild, but again, pops aren't a good thing. Like it's funny. I've heard people be like, Oh, it was, it was my elbow it just popped. Don't worry about it. You're like, what do you? <laughs> Everything happened. Like it doesn't just, it shouldn't just pop, you know? But okay. So like, let's say it was something like with your knee, like let's say it starts to feel like looser and unstable. Like your knee is moving in ranges of motion that it really shouldn't. You know, if you have like an excessive amount of swelling, locking and catching is big. So if like you're having, like you move your leg in a certain way and your knee literally locks up and you have to like wiggle around to unlock, that's really bad situation. If you have some kind of, uh, you're having like radiating symptoms down your arms and your legs or down an arm or down your leg, you're having numbness in your hand, you're having weakness. These are all bad things that you should definitely get checked. Again, if someone has some kind of like instability in their knee, I'm likely going to think that they have some kind of ligament issue. Some ligaments do respond to conservative care, conservative meaning physical therapy. Some, like the ACL, a lot of times need surgery. Now, not everybody's going to need surgery depending on the issue, but for the most part, you're going to want that. You know, if you're getting like locking and catching in your knee, that would be a, a meniscus, like a bucket handle meniscus tear. In most cases, that's a hundred percent surgery. Like, you can't really rehab that, right? Because there's something wrong with the anatomy. The anatomy isn't going to heal. So that flap's going to keep catching, you know, and there's always going to be a point at one point it's going to catch. And when it unlocks, it's going to tear more, right? And, you know, people are kind of foolish with the meniscus. Like, oh, just, just take it out. Well, the meniscus has a function. Like you shouldn't just get rid of stuff, you know? If, you know, when it comes to like some spine issues, like you're having, you know, pain reading down a, a limb, you know, that's kind of a sign that you should see someone if you're having weakness, like noticeable weakness, or you're having atrophy, those are really bad signs because the thing that I'm, I would be worried about would be that we know that the nerve is compressed, but if there's weakness or atrophy, then there's a, there's a point where that nerve is compressed, where if you don't get it uncompressed, there's kind of like a point of like no return where like you could have like permanent nerve damage. Like I think they've talked about like, uh, Bass Rutten has like one arm that's smaller than another. Like, Ugh. 
that arm's not going to come back because the nerve in, in many cases is dead. You know, so like with Aljamain Sterling, he had a neck surgery. So he had an anterior disc replacement in his C7, I believe. And the reason why he had to get surgery was because he was having tricep weakness. And the surgeon said, hey, if we don't do surgery, this nerve like might not regenerate and you might have permanent weakness. And that's terrifying. Now, for me, when it comes to spine surgeries, I am very, very conservative. Like I would, you know, I would say try conservative care, get like two or three opinions from surgeons to make sure that this is the thing. But again, you don't want to wait that long. Like a lot of times you don't just get like atrophy out of nowhere. It's usually first you're having like neck pain, then you're having radiating symptoms, then you're having weakness, then you're having atrophy. So there was a point during that transition where you could have addressed it before it got that bad. And I think that this is what a lot of athletes need to realize when it comes to injury management is if let's say you have an injury and it doesn't go back to 100%, maybe you go back to 99%. What happens with a lot of veteran jiu-jitsu athletes or combat athletes or athletes in general is these minor injuries start to accumulate. Well, then you get enough of these injuries and now you're not able to train the way that you need to, to one, compete at the level you want, or you might not even be able to train. So that's usually when a lot of athletes retire because you have to think that if, you know, like if let's say you're a jiu-jitsu athlete, like your knowledge in the sport hopefully has gotten better. So the only thing is, is your body is now deteriorating. You know, it's not necessarily just age. It's that wear and tear of not addressing these issues. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a ton of sense. And I mean, that's something that I definitely feel. I think a lot of other people do just a lot of really weird, little small nagging injuries and in and of themselves, maybe they're not so bad, but they do add up. Right. I mean, I've got like a a weird finger situation going on. I got a weird toe situation going on, but you get enough of those and you wind up being pretty decrepit and it's probably in your best interests to avoid that situation and deal with these things as they come up. Absolutely. You know, that's the thing too. Like I can't speak for everyone, but I assume so. At some point, you're not going to be able to compete anymore. But jujitsu is like, what's cool about jujitsu is it's like an activity that you should be able to do for long periods of time. Like Helio Gracie was doing some form of jujitsu into his late 80s, early 90s. Again, he's not rolling with professional fighters, but he's doing something. And I think there's something that's really admirable about that. And it's something that I myself would like is I would like to build jiu-jitsu for a very, very long time. And managing those injuries is, I mean, critical, you know, it's just one of those things where if let's say you're, you're dealing with an injury and like you notice that like after like four weeks, it hasn't gotten better. At that point, I think it's a good idea to talk to somebody like tissue healing for the most part, most tissue heals within like four months. So if you're having, you know, there's people who have like chronic pain that they've been dealing with for like six months. At that point, it's no longer, I have to let it heal. It could have been, you had an injury. Now you, your movement patterns are altered. Now you're developing these compensations. So now at this point, it's not, a, we have to let it heal. It's like, we have to learn how to retrain your body. If that, if that makes sense. Right. Now, Help me out here and forgive my ignorance, but when you say four weeks, that seems like a long time. I mean, waiting four weeks for treatment seems like that, depending on the injury, that might be too long. Am I misunderstanding something here? Well, when I say, I'm saying like, obviously the other things I say were more important, but I would say like four weeks, like you're dealing with something if there's no improvement. I mean, you could say two weeks, you could say four weeks. Again, I'm dealing with a population that for the most part, they're not going to go see someone. So I'm trying to give, (laughs) if I say like no improvement within a week, they're not going to do anything. So I'm kind of, again, I might be a little bit more conservative with the, the four weeks, 
I'm just kind of giving someone some kind of guideline where they definitely should go see someone, right? You know, this is, there's nothing that I'm saying is like, you know, written in stone is I'm just kind of giving an idea of, you know, if like you're dealing with something and you're like, it's not getting that much better. That's again, when I would say, go see somebody. Got it. Got it. Okay. I get it. That makes sense. And I'm presuming too, that the advice kind of varies depending on the situation, right? I'm assuming that if, for example, I've got a a tweaked finger, that's probably quite different from if it's my neck or my back or something like that. Yeah. The other stuff that I told you about the instability and all the numbness and the tingling, those are stuff I would say go see right, right away. I'm talking about like you're dealing with this like vague shoulder pain. Like, cause like some of it is, you know, like I have this one athlete who saw me. He's like, yeah, my shoulders bother me. And then we started going through it and it was just based on how I moved. You know, he had a, a knee shield half guard. And he'd always reach over and he would Kimura the arm. But when he's reaching for the Kimura, his shoulder is going in a range of motion they didn't really have, which was why his shoulder was bugging him. So some of it was just like, okay, well, we need your shoulder to be a little bit more mobile. But in the meantime, let's just not do this specific technique. And it resolved pretty fast. Yeah. Now, this is something I would definitely like to explore with you because, of course, a lot of instructors will say, okay, if you get an injury... You can still train, you just need to work around that injury. And whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, I think is probably very context-dependent. But I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I mean, when you come back after a long layoff, do you have to baby that uh, that part of your body that got hurt? Or in some cases, is it okay to really actually just train through the injury? Or is that a bad idea? Okay, so obviously it's the context, you know, it depends on the situation, right? So certain parameters, how I bring someone back. So before I even say, go back to training, regardless of the injury, the first thing that I would do is I would do a few classes of just doing technique and warm-up. And the reason why is because obviously it's slower and controlled, but it gives you a little bit better awareness of what you can or cannot do. So before you just say, I'm going to go roll with this athletic D1 wrestler blue belt who's going to try to kill me, you know, like you're going with someone, you like you kind of, you better awareness of your limitations. And like, I mean, obviously not everyone can do this, but when I'm working with my clients and my patients, a lot of things what I'll do is I like to use like solo drills. Now, solo drills might be kind of boring, but I think they're one good for learning kind of like basic movements, but two, again, same thing. They allow you to have a better understanding of certain positions that are critical for jiu-jitsu that you might not be able to do yet. You know, again, first I do solo drills. You graduate from that. Now I graduate you to technique. You have a little bit better limitation in the process. You know, I'm working with my clients or my patients. They're giving me feedback. So you're like, hey, I can't do this one position. What do we do about it? And obviously we address it. Right, right. Okay. And then following that, you know, like, so now you're going back. Kind of like the next step of what I would do would be flow rolling. Now, no, flow rolling is kind of interesting because not everybody can flow roll. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> you know, Some people can flow roll for about five seconds, but as soon as they think they're going to start losing, it turns into the Mundials. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting because even though I'm a black belt, I don't have students, but like there was like one criteria that I thought was really important. And I always think that would be very, very, if you're going to be a purple belt, at least you should know how to flow, right? Because essentially, if you think about it, whether people realize or not, is in jujitsu, our whole goal is efficiency of movement. Meaning like when I look at a black belt, they should be like that Jedi, right? Where like somebody's attacking them 100% and they're still flowing because their technique is so good, they don't have to use force. So if that's our goal, 
right? That like when you're a purple belt, which means that you're like, you know, pretty talented or pretty skilled is you shouldn't need to rely on your strength to get something done, especially if someone isn't resisting. Yeah, definitely. Now I would ask then, is there anything that you can do or structure to help people work around the fact that they have challenges <laughs> when it comes to flow rolling? Because like you said, everyone knows they're supposed to, but very few people can sustain that without turning it into a death match. Are there any training parameters you found that are are helpful for keeping people in that mindset? I've heard, for example, the, the uh, 3S rule. I don't know if you've heard that, but that's something that's come up at my gym where we say no strength, no speed, no submissions. And that's kind of how we dictate flow rolling. You're just not allowed to use those three. And if you take those things out, particularly the no submissions part, it tends to force people into a situation where they have to flow a little bit more because you're removing the seductively violent parts of the sport. But I'm wondering if you've got any other guidelines that you recommend to people to to help them flow. I mean, that's a good system. I mean, a perfect world, a lot of like when I'm working with a, a patient coming back from injury, a perfect world, I am the person that they're rolling with because I can flow so I can give them tips. That's not always the case, obviously, because there's only one of me. But working with higher belts, like black belts, is always going to be good if they're willing to do it. But like you said, like, you know, like I would say stay away from submissions, right? Because the goal is to submit the person. So if if they know that they're not going to get the submission, then what are they fighting for, right? I would say don't really resist any, like you're trying not to get into a scramble, meaning like somebody moves, you can still do stuff. But it's like, don't think that you have to like outwork the other person. And like, I would say like, you know, if somebody's going for like a sweep or a pass, like you can let it happen. But, you know, it's kind of a a tricky thing to teach someone how to flow roll other than, you know, some people get it and some people don't. But, you know, I would say that the rule that you had is pretty good. That's awesome. Okay. I would ask then when people do encounter that injury and they're off the mats, maybe they're in a situation where they, they know they can't train for a while. Maybe it's a relatively serious injury or their doctor gives them good advice that for that kind of injury, they just, they need to rehab it properly. Do you recommend that people basically go cold turkey and just fully rest and recover during the time off? Or are there any exercises that a person should be doing while they're recovering or rehabbing just to kind of keep somewhat sharp? Absolutely. Okay. So yeah, I don't think it's a good idea to completely rest. Obviously it depends on what you're doing from a physical standpoint. This is where that assessment's key. So if someone, I'm sure I'm going to get this, people are going to message me and say, Hey, I got an elbow pain. What do I do? And my answer is always going to be, I don't know, because I don't know that person and there's could be different things. And, and I've kind of came to the conclusion that I would rather give no advice than give like bullshit advice, you know, like that's generic advice. Like that's why medical doctors give very generic advice is because they don't know who they're dealing with. So it's easy to say just rest because most people are stupid. So if we say, Hey, rest, they'll probably avoid the activity that's aggravating them. So there's like a cool acronym that I like. So there used to be that acronym, acronym RICE, you know, rest, ice, compression, elevation. So one that I like a little bit better is called peace and love. So the P is protect, meaning you want to protect that injury. And this is the tricky thing. It's, it's beneficial for, you know, when someone works with me, because I can specifically say, this is what the issue is. This is what's going to aggravate it. This is what you need to avoid. So they can still do something else. And again, I know that's vague, but it's context dependent. Then the, the O and the L are together and that's called optimal loading, meaning. You know, so th- there's a lot of research out there when people sprain their ankle that there's actually better outcomes with early mobilization as opposed to like casting and booting. And the idea is that, like I said, with after the injury, the injury is the quality of the tissue is 
you know, I guess fibrotic, aberrant, suboptimal. So with that mechanotherapy is we appropriately stress the injured tissue to get it back. And again, I know, you know, that's vague, but that's kind of my job is, is I would figure out what is the injured tissue and then how do we get it back to the way it was. And again, it can be light isometrics to heavy deadlift. I mean, again, mechanotherapy really is a broad spectrum because rehab and strength and conditioning are really the same thing. Just the quality of the tissue is vastly different. One's going to be painful injured tissue. One's going to be a strong tissue that we're trying to make more resilient. Then what we can look at Actually, this is kind of an interesting thing, which people say, one of the things you actually want to be careful of is avoiding anti-inflammatories. Now, the reason why that's the case is because the inflammation, the initial inflammatory process is needed for the healing cascade. So if we just, the second wave injury, we start popping anti-inflammatories, we're actually blunting or slowing that down. So when it comes to anti-inflammatories, you know, there, there's a lot of different ways you can look at it. But if you're not dealing with a lot of resting pain, I would say try to avoid it. Obviously, if you're having a high allow, high amounts of resting pain, then I would say, hey, let's not, you know, you might benefit from taking the anti-inflammatory because for some people, the pain at the time is worse and we do want to address that. You know, and that's why we also potentially avoid ice. Now, again, ice is kind of becoming a more controversial topic for the same thing is does ice stop inflammation, right? And if it does, it's blunting the inflammatory process, but we have to look at the resting pain. So, you know, if I'm dealing with someone who has a lot of resting pain because ice what it does is it also blocks the, the nerve conduction velocity. So like the, the nerve signal to get to the brain gets reduced. So that's how it helps reduce pain. So for some people, they have high amounts of resting pain. Maybe they would respond well to ice. Some people love ice. But again, if we're worried about rebuilding the tissue quality, maybe I don't do that. Again, it depends on, on the issue. I think compression is really good for swelling. So even though the inflammatory process is needed for the healing cascade, we don't want that accumulation of swelling. And, and my favorite way to deal with compression, or sorry, swelling would be compression. Essentially what we do is we help, we assist the body to pump out that extra fluid. And then elevation, same idea is inflammatory is needed, but we don't want that accumulation of swelling. So elevating will help increase blood flow. I see. I see. Well, let me ask you a question here, because there can be a lot of reasons why people have to take time off of the mats beyond just acute injury. So I apologize in advance if this is taking you outside of your wheelhouse. Just let me know if that's the case. But what about, you know, hot topic right now is long COVID. You're part of our Discord community, and I got people in there all the time talking about how they're suffering from things like reduced lung capacity or fatigue or their cardio just isn't where it was before getting COVID. I just got COVID and I'm on the mend from that myself. So (laughs) something that's very topical for me. Are there any particular concerns there or suggestions you have? If it's something like that, where the problem is not necessarily an acute injury in the, in the traditional sports sense, so to speak, but maybe something else like this that could impact your lung capacity. And it doesn't have to be COVID. I mean, I don't know, maybe there is specific advice in that situation, but it could even just be a really bad cold or a bad flu or something to that capacity. Does the advice change in that situation or does the advice remain basically the same? Well, my caveat is an infectious disease specialist probably would be able to answer better. But 
from my assumption with long COVID is it's like, you know, there's the inflammation of the, the heart tissue, which is affecting your whole cardiovascular system, your aerobic system. So generally, in most cases, if, you know, that's the case, you do want to go through your period of rest during COVID. But after that, I think it would be a good idea to incorporate low intensity, long duration aerobic training. So your aerobic fitness is like a, a really, really important metric, both for your overall fitness, but your overall health. So if we know that your cardiovascular system is somewhat impaired by doing, look, when I say low intensity, like you're in your, like, again, you're, you should be doing like light work, you know? And, and when I say light, when I program aerobic training for my clients, essentially what we want to be is we want to be under your lactic threshold. So there's going to be a point where as your heart rate continues to raise, then you're going to get to a point where you're no longer able to use oxygen. So aerobic is using oxygen. Then you, your body kind of switches over and it starts, it's called alactic, where it starts to use other resources. So like glucose or your phosphocreatine system. So you want to train below that point where your body switches over. And, you know, there's different measures of things that you can do, different tests, but like some super easy thing you could do is you should be able to work in a heart rate range of motion where you're able to hold like a some kind of conversation. If you're breathing too hard and you can't, maybe you're going too hard, if that makes sense. Got it. Yeah, that makes tons of sense. And I ask this question because I suspect that for the foreseeable future, a lot of the returning to sport questions that we're going to get are going to involve coming back after COVID, right? That's, I think, going to be a fact of life, at least for the foreseeable future, something that's definitely impacting me and, like I said, some other people in the community. Now, something that you talked about earlier was the importance of being very careful with anti-inflammatories, because although, of course, they do cut down on inflammation, Inflammation can be part of the healing process, and so to some extent, you do need that inflammatory response. I would ask, does that advice also apply in the case of a virus like COVID? And I don't know the answer here. I am pretty ignorant on this, but my understanding, of course, is that with COVID, one of the scariest things is an overreaction from your body in terms of inflammation. So in that situation, I mean, I presume that what you want to do is get a doctor's advice, but do we do we encourage people to avoid anti-inflammatories if they're dealing with COVID, or is it actually helpful and beneficial in the early stages to take those things? Yeah, I'll say that's out of my wheelhouse. That would be a a question for a a medical doctor. I wouldn't want to give because because when it comes to COVID, like my expertise is musculoskeletal, so I would say go talk to your physician and see what they recommend. Okay, perfect. That's just something I wanted to clarify. Sorry for putting you on the spot (laughs) there, but I just wanted to make sure that when we're talking about avoiding anti-inflammatories to an extent, we're specifically talking about sports injury. We're not necessarily talking about like viral response or something like that. Yeah, specifically musculoskeletal issues. Got it. Okay. Okay. Makes tons of sense. Now, I mean, I would say that, you know, where I'm at right now, and again, we'll just keep using me as an example. I'm at a point now where I've been testing negative for COVID for a while. I'm feeling pretty good. All of my symptoms have cleared back out, but I know that when I get back on the mats, I will certainly be out of shape and (laughs) struggling for breath because regardless of the COVID situation, I've been off for a few weeks, right? And that's going to have an impact. Do you have any guidance for people like that who on the way back, they've got the inevitable gas tank considerations that happen when you take any amount of time off. Is there any suggestion or advice you have for people on just getting their cardio back quickly and efficiently and effectively without 
any nasty side effects. I'm just wondering if there's a good routine for that that you would tend to prescribe. So the first thing I would say is you want to do a graded exposure to activity. And this can happen when you're coming back from injury or if like someone's getting ready for a competition where they like they have a drastic increase in their training volume, whether it's skill training or, or strength and conditioning. But like I would say is like because I've also had COVID, after I had COVID is is I gradually exposed myself to training, meaning, you know, maybe the first session I was going light, you know, and, you know, depending on, on how bad your cardio is, maybe you, you roll around rest around, roll around restaurant, you do it for a week. Then the next week you maybe do, instead of doing like one or two sessions, you add an extra session and then you slowly build up depending on whatever you feel comfortable with. So, you know, if you had normally done you know, four training sessions a week. Maybe the first week you do one, second week you do two, third week you do three, fourth week you do four. Again, gradually expose yourself so you gradually build up. You increase the intensity because not every, you know, it's like like when I was coming back from an injury, like I don't always roll with like the black belts or the pro fighters that are going to try to kill me is I'm working my way up. Like I start with kind of like a smaller blue belt. Then I work myself up to a purple belt. So again, it's always a graded exposure, right? I would say it's good to have awareness of who you can or cannot roll with. Again, don't roll to pro fighter. Don't go with, with that like D1 wrestler blue belt. Again, he's only a quote unquote blue belt, but the role is going to be very physical, right? Because the, the nature of that round is going to be vastly different. Right. So that would be context of getting back to training. Again, a slow grade exposure to the activity. See, it's interesting that you bring that up in that order because I would have assumed that it would be better to attack it in the opposite order, where rather than like starting with low belts and climbing the ladder, I would be inclined to go the opposite because I know that if I start with a black belt or a brown belt, I'm way less likely to get injured if I tell them, look, I'm, I am on the mend right now. Please beat me up gently, right? I, I have more confidence that a brown or a black belt could properly flow roll. And I would wait and integrate the blue belts and the white belts back at the end of my recovery because I generally have the least confidence in them in terms of the ability to roll safely. So I guess obviously it depends on who you're rolling with. The reason why I say a blue belt is even in a compromised state, the blue belt might not be flown, but I can flow. So Got like, it. you know, and that's the idea versus, you know, like I know the people who I'm, I'd be competitive with, like, yes, I could say, take it easy, but like, you know, th- there's still, you know, competition in the training room where certain black belts are still going to try to take my head off. So that, mm-hmm. that's why I said that. Got it. Again, you know, if you are a lower belt, Going with a black belt might be better. But again, not every black belt is going to be super nice. Like they still might be crushing you. So, yeah. you know, you have to know who your training partners. Okay. So it's more of a trust factor, you're saying. Basically, yeah. you want to roll with someone that you know can keep the intensity within the range that you need it to be at. Correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Even if you personally can't do that. Correct. Correct. <laughs> you want a training partner who can do that for you. Yes. Yeah. And the, the reason, just like for my personality, is I don't like telling people like I'm coming back from an in- injury. Like I just, I roll. And if I need to tap, I need to tap. Again, that's just me being a competitive, like, you know, still have that ego competitive mindset. Like if I need to tap, I'll do it. But I don't want to like, it's so frustrating when you say, you go with that guy. He's like, hey, I'm just coming back for an injury. I want to go light. And then they don't go light. You're like, dude, like, what am I doing? Like, it's either we're going light or we're not. Like, but because he said he's an injury and this is also frustrating is a lot of times when I have an injured client, I'm the first person they can roll with. And, you know, like, I'll be honest, I'm the type of guy, like, I'm a leg locker, so I don't, I don't mind. I mean, again, I'm controlled. I don't hurt people. But it's always like someone has a knee injury, and then they're, like, going crazy. And I'm like, man, I can't heel hook this guy. 
you know, you know, I actually personally find and I can't say that this is a true experience across the board, but I personally find that I have more faith in leg lockers to not hurt me than in what I guess what you would call jujitsu traditionalists. And I don't know exactly why that is, but I think part of it is because we know that you can really mess people up with heel hooks and toe holds. And so if you train at a gym where you use those, you're probably getting it beaten into your head on a daily basis that you have to be careful with these moves. So, I mean, I could just say my brother's gym is what I would describe as kind of like a modern new age jujitsu gym. They're all very heavily into leg locks. I have very little concern training with my brother because I know he's never going to rip my leg off. Whereas if you train with people who kind of follow the traditional system, so to speak, I think jujitsu people are kind of taught erroneously, I would say, that, oh, chokes are always safe. You can't hurt someone with a choke or, you know, an arm bar, people have plenty of time to tap. It's the leg locks that are dangerous. So I think that sometimes... People maybe think that those classical submissions are safer than they actually are. And I, I find anyway that people are more likely to reef on those because they think they can do it safely. Yeah. Whereas, again, maybe this is a gym culture thing. But I find when I'm training with an expert leg locker, they are very, very dainty and delicate with making sure that they're not putting on torque on my leg until they know it's time to do so and they do it very safely. Again, your mileage may vary, but that's actually what I found, at least for my training partners. Yeah, I can see that because like I would say the way that leg locks have evolved from like back in the day to now is now the leg game is it's just a different controlling position. So like back in the day, you would just, you know, like there'd be some scramble, you'd grab a heel and rip. So if like, you know, again, you're rolling in a direction, you have to, you know, you would have to submit them before they escape. So you're applying it really fast. And I think that's why it's a little dangerous. Well, now the more modern game is this different leg entanglements. I can get in a good leg position and it's just a different controlling position than like mount or side control. So like I literally could just take my time and just hook the heel and look at them because I'm not in a rush. They're trapped. If you're a good leg locker, you, there's no rush. So I think that's one. I would also argue that a lot of injuries related to helix come to people who are ignorant of the position. So they either, they're like, oh, I think I'm good because they're not comfortable. You know, like the, those, you know, pro fighters and I've been there like, well, you know, they don't know where their limits are. So they just don't tap because they're waiting for pain. I'm like, come on, man. Like, I don't want to have to do this. So <laughs> I feel that when the defender is ignorant, that's a problem. But again, like you said, if the attacker understands legs, they know when they have it or not. And if you're not an asshole, you're like, okay, well, I have this guy. He's not tapping. Like in most cases, I'll just let it go and then just tell him after the roll, you know? Yeah, I think that's an important distinction in terms of the new versus old ways of thinking. I mean, I, yes, it is true that you can really screw someone up with a heel hook or a toe hold, but I would also say that people who teach those techniques tend to make that incredibly clear, and they tend to make safety very much part of the training. Whereas on the flip side, at least when I started jujitsu, part of the marketing around it was that, oh, this is totally safe. You can't hurt anyone with this stuff. It's, you know, it's, you can choke someone and it's totally fine. To this day, people still refuse to acknowledge that there are serious health risks to trying to choke someone, right? Like we still, people in jujitsu still don't believe this, that you can really fuck someone up. You can kill someone with a carotid restraint. And, and this happens quite often in jujitsu that people, they don't respect it. And so they try to fight out of it and then they have a stroke. Yeah. And to this day, people still don't believe that 
this happens, even though there is more and more mounting proof that it does. Whereas I would argue that with leg lockers, they tend to, I think, have a better understanding of the harms of, of their training and what damage they can do. I think that people who kind of follow the classic choke and armbar model are still kind of in a bit of denial in terms of how badly you can really hurt someone doing that stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Well, I would ask you then on that note, what do you think about training handicaps? So let's say you come back and, okay, maybe you just came back from knee surgery and you don't have confidence at the moment in terms of your ability to load up weight on your knee or do anything explosive. And you're worried about your opponent attacking your leg. In the past, I have had luck just putting restrictions on our training. So as an example, there was a guy I was training with. He was a blue belt. He had two ACL reconstructions at the same time. So basically his legs were useless, but he was able to still have some success showing up to the mat and only doing back sparring. So basically he would take someone's back. He would try to avoid using his legs too much. And he would basically try to just use seatbelt control and chest to back connection. And if someone got out of that, we would just reset and go back into that position. And then we would switch. And then the other person would do that. And by doing that, I mean, you're not getting a complete jujitsu experience because you're really only drilling one thing, but you are at least staying on the mat in some capacity that is probably a lot safer because you're specifically cutting out the part of jujitsu where you have to load up weight onto that body part. Is that a good idea? Is that something that you do or is that just wishful thinking? Well, okay. So when I explained kind of like how I, I bring people pack, first we do solo drilling, then we do technical drilling, then we do flow rolling. Kind of the next step would be positional rolling. And I think that's because it is still live and competitive. So like it's uncontrollable, right? So mm-hmm. that's why all the other stuff's controlled. This is not controlled. So that would be kind of like the next phase. In the context with your, you know, training partner who are the two ACLs, I would not recommend that guy do it, but that's the whole return to sport after an ACL surgery. You know, obviously it's, it's a long topic. I think for them, like I would be holding them from doing any positional rolling until like seven and a half months at least. So. Right. In fairness, that guy was an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. Like I heard that like the, one of the Meow brothers had like ACL surgery and he just trained during the whole time. He just told uh. his training partners not to, he's like, don't leg lock me. In my opinion though, like if you're going to go through a surgery, why, why do that? Like, because the whole point is, is if you mess up the surgery, now you have to do it again. But worse is when they do an ACL surgery, that second surgery is never as good as the first. So you're just going to keep compromising your potential. So if like you're going to commit to, I'm going to get this surgery, take the time off. Don't just keep trying to like do stupid stuff so you can stay in it because ultimately you're going to harm yourself. You know, for someone who's in a position who, okay, so maybe they are, they're, they're dealing with an ACL surgery and they're not ready to come back. Those are the type of people I would focus on something else that will improve your jujitsu in the long run. Meaning like when someone's coming back from like some kind of long surgery, they're the type of people say, Hey, this is your time to take your mobility, strength, conditioning to another level because you're not in a point where that ligament is safe to be stressed, but we can get you as strong as possible, get you work on your conditioning. And like, you know, when you were saying like coming back from an injury, there's a lot of times I, I think it would be better for you to do a controlled cardio training. Like again, some kind of stationary bike, if you're in a position where you can do that, so you can still work on your conditioning, but not where you're worried about an injury. And like, you know, I, I've talked about this and, and people argue with me. 
If you have poor conditioning, regardless of injury or not, in my opinion, rolling isn't the best way to get more conditioning, right? Because when you're coming back or when you're dealing with your, you know, when you're rolling, right? There's two things that will compromise your conditioning. There's your skill efficiency. So how efficient are you with your movement, which is be more technical. And then there's the actual capacity. When I roll, my job is to use as little energy as possible to get the job done. Like I don't just like go hard for the sake of going hard because that's going to kill my efficiency. That's, that's counterproductive. So granted, I want to go with higher training partners that make it so I can't solely rely on skill. So that capacity would be that outside conditioning where again, maybe we do some type of, you know, some other way of working on your cardiovascular endurance so that when you do come back to training, your cardio isn't just terrible, like you did something. So you're a little bit more ready. So you don't gas in like the first or second round. Yeah. I was recently talking to Ryan Hurst, one of the guys behind GMB fitness, and he was on the podcast and he brought up some really good points, which is that look, one of the things about jujitsu is that you don't have full control over what's going to happen to your own body. (laughs) You know, in a lot of solo activities, you have full control over the range of motion that you extend to, the amount of force you use. And so it's really up to you to take things to your comfort level and beyond where it makes sense. Whereas in jujitsu, you've got a resisting opponent who's going to do whatever they can to you to win. So the problem is, it's not always the safest environment if you're doing things like coming back from an injury because you can't control whether your opponent is going to stack you on your head or something like that. And even with the most gentle and best meaning of training partners, that can still happen. I would be curious to know in that intermediary phase where you're ramping back up to prepare for your return to the mats, what do you think about programs like that? Do you have any experience with uh, Ryan's GMB fitness program, for instance? Is that the kind of thing you're looking at? Yoga? What kind of stuff do you recommend when it comes to getting your your physicality back up? to prepare for your return? So one, when it comes to injury prevention, you know, if you look at literature, some type of strength training, you know, again, strength training can be defined in a lot of different ways, but strength training is the most important thing to reduce injury. And it kind of makes sense if you think about it, because a lot of time injuries happen when there's a stress applies to the tissue that surpass the capacity of that tissue, right? Bad stuff happens. So what are some ways that we can increase the capacity of that tissue is we want to increase the resilience, which would be strength training in some capacity. Okay. I would also throw is what the caveat would be is you have to have whatever mobility of the activities that you're doing. So again, if, if your shoulder is super stiff and someone applies a Kimura, it doesn't really matter how strong it is because it's already going to be in a stress position. So that's, that's a problem, right? So a system that I use a lot for my clients and for my uh, my patients is something called functional range systems, which essentially it's a very systematic approach to training and optimizing your joints. So you could look at GM fitness, right? So these are movements that have, that will, their movements are similar to jujitsu. So there's going to be a crossover. So this would be a compound movement, right? And again, obviously I work in the rehab world, so I'm usually focused on someone that has something problematic, but I would all start is if like, let's say you're dealing with the shoulder, how do we make sure that shoulder is able to handle the rigors of the sport? So I would actually start with isolation of training that shoulder before I move to that, 
those compound movements, right? So, you know, like, like the monkey or the bear or whatever he calls it, you know, <laughs> the animals. Yeah. But I mean, like, and I kind of build that into my, my return to sport when I work with people, someone's a shoulder injury, you know, first things I have to think about is, does the shoulder have a good rotational capacity? Because that's a way that we can look at the health of, a, of the shoulder. But two, we have to think of, you know, we can't control if someone's going to come more Americana. So I have to make sure that I can get there and I have some resilience. But then, you know, to tie into what Ryan was saying, like, I will use like a quadruped, like being on your hands and knees, or like, I guess that'd be his bear. That's for me, that's an important milestone because we do that in jujitsu, right? Like we have to make sure that we can weight bear through our shoulders, whether we're passing and someone tries to sweep us and we use our arms to base, whether we're in turtle, we're trying to explode out and, you know, like, so that is a movement that I do consider to be very important. But for me, I would start with isolation, isolated movements. Let's make sure the joint can do what the joint's supposed to before I progress someone to those compound movements. Awesome. Amazing. Well, we're closing in on an hour here, Mike. And I would say last question I got for you, let's say you got a magic wand. You can change everyone's behavior in the world. If you could get everyone in jujitsu to either start doing something or stop doing something (laughs) to make it easier for them to remain engaged in the sport from a health and fitness standpoint, any general advice, any things you really wish you could change just to make everyone's lives a little bit easier? I don't think there's one thing, but I think that one thing would be important would be a lot of people, they do their training and for a lot of recreational hobbyists, like jujitsu is their sport, but jujitsu isn't really necessarily good for your body. I mean, like you think joint locks, we're stretching them to like kind of their end range and like, it's not really good for our joints. So I think it would be important for people to do some type of supplemental strength conditioning or movement training to allow them to keep doing it. And, you know, like people are more interested in like performance training, right? So how can I perform better? They care more about that. But in my opinion, injury management is kind of like the base because if you have injuries, it doesn't matter. Like injuries are always going to slow down your performance. So having some type of movement practice, some type of strength training will benefit you because we want to do things to maintain your body. Something that I do is kin stretch and functional range systems. That doesn't have to be for everybody. You know, I think it's important for people to do something. Some people like yoga, some people like GMB fitness, some people like, you know, traditional barbells, some people like kettlebells. They all have some value and you have to make sure you like it, right? So if I say you have to weight train, I have so many clients that don't like lifting weights. So am I going to say like too bad, like you have to lift weights? What do you think their compliance is going to be? It's going to be terrible. So I think to figure out something that you can do that you like that will allow you to maintain your body so that you can do jujitsu for long periods of time. Right. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I guess I would ask here then, there's going to be a lot of listeners out there who really resonate with this topic. Maybe they're on the mend and they're looking for some help. If they want to work with one of the most prominent doctors in the jujitsu space to help them get back up to speed, the doctor who helps folks like Andrew Wiltsey and works with Margo Ciccarelli and Dr. Matteo Capo, how would they get in contact with that person? Yeah, so probably the best way to contact me is Instagram, which is the word doctor underscore kickass. I do have a website. Uh, I got rid of my my old one because essentially I was just duplicating information I already had on my social media. So my new one just has a contact information. I'm on Facebook, same thing, but Instagram is usually the best way to contact me. 
Got it. Amazing. And as always, I'll put those links in the show notes. So if anyone wants to reach out to Mike here, easy way to do it. Just pop open your podcast player. There will be a link there. Tap that and off you go. You'll be able to find him pretty easily. Beyond that, of course, just a plug for myself, of course, while I'm at it, bjjmentalmodels.com. If you're interested in checking out our premium stuff, I do highly recommend it. We talked about folks like Andrew Wiltsey and Margot Ciccarelli on the podcast. They've got premium courses that we've made and produced with them that you can find on our premium service. There's a free trial. Highly recommend it. In addition to over 50 hours of instructional content on there, similar to what we do on the podcast. You also get access to our awesome video feedback coaching service and our sweet Discord community. So if you're not already on there, I really highly recommend everyone check it out, bjjmentalmodels.com. Thanks for checking it out. Anything else, Mike, on your side that you want to plug while I got you here? Anything you're working on that needs promotion? I would say right now, probably the biggest thing it would be just if people want to work with me to contact, just like you'd said, I am in the process of working on a mentorship program for healthcare professionals. So again, for those healthcare professionals that want to work with combat athletes, they really don't know what they're doing or they want a little bit more information. Um, I'm probably a few months away from getting that out, but I think that's going to be important because, you know, perfect world, I still can't help everybody. So if I can at least help the other healthcare professionals, physical therapists, chiropractors, so that when they're dealing with, with their people, they're a little bit, they have a little bit more knowledge of what they're trying to get someone back to. Oh, awesome. So if someone, maybe they can't be a doctor of kick-ass, but they could at least, I presume, be like a nurse of kick-ass or something, right? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Amazing. Well, thanks a lot, Mike. I really enjoyed this chat. I always appreciate having you by. I think it's going to be a good one and helpful to a lot of people. I expect it to resonate with many of the listeners. So thanks a lot for coming by. I greatly appreciate it. No problem, man. This was fun. Always fun with you, man. And of course, to everyone out there who hangs out with us every week, always fun with you guys and girls too. Thanks so much for the time and attention. Talk to you next week. Take care.